This is the Alpha Human Podcast, and I am your host, Lawrence Rosenberg. Today's guest is Sean McFate. Sean is a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, a Washington, D.C. think tank, and a professor of strategy at the National Defense University and Georgetown University School of Foreign Service. Sean served as a paratrooper and officer in the U.S. Army's 82nd Airborne Division under General Stan McChrystal and David Petraeus, and was a private military contractor and paramilitary where he raised armies for U.S. interests abroad. Sean is also the author of the nonfiction book, The New Rules of War, How America Can Win Against Russia, China, and Other Threats, Uh, The New Rules of War was actually named a book of the year by The Economist. Uh, Sean also authored the book, The Modern Mercenary, Private Armies and What They Mean for World Order, which we'll talk a lot about in this podcast. Uh, And Sean also writes military thrillers. His latest novel is High Treason, which had the number one New York Times bestselling author, James Patterson, saying, Sean McFate just might be the next Tom Clancy, only I think he's even better. The action is nonstop. Wow. Sean, welcome to the show. It's great to be here, Lawrence. Thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. Man, you're you're drawing comparisons (laughs) to Tom Clancy and another uh, famous uh, name that's linked with, uh, with military or certainly military strategy. Uh, Admiral Jim uh, Stavridis, if I'm saying his name correctly, mm-hmm. uh, the, yeah, the former NATO Supreme Allied Commander said, Sean McFate is a new Sun Tzu. These are <laughs> some heavy-duty comparisons, uh, Sean. I'm Sean. humbled. I am truly humbled by both of them. And nobody was more surprised than I, but thank you very much. Well, I, I'll tell you what, I've read uh, your books, um, not, the, not the novels, although I'm highly intrigued by uh, the novels. High Treason looks really exciting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I've, I've read uh, The Modern Mercenary, uh, which is just, it really is an eye-opener for anyone who doesn't understand uh, where things stand with the modern military, let alone, let alone how mercenaries and private military contractors are... Uh, such a part of what the modern military is today, but also uh, the new rules of war, which I'm not finished with yet, but which is a mind blower, uh, really, uh, even for people that are up to date on, on current events, on, you know, our, on military actions, uh, on geopolitics. It really is an eye opener. So we're, we'll get into all of it uh, a lot more on the modern, mercis- um, on the modern mercenary. Uh, but I'd love to start with really kind of what inspired you. I'd love to hear a little bit about, uh, about your background on what motivated you to, to join the military in the first place, uh, and, uh, the army in particular, uh, if you could talk a little bit about that. Sure. Well, I was not, I was not one of those kids who played soldier growing up. I was, I was like the least stereotypical uh, kid in the world. I, I would read encyclopedias on Saturday afternoons. I was very wow. geeky. Yeah, I was very um, not into G.I. Joe, any of that stuff. Um, what happened is I was a small kid. Um, 
my grandfather, like many of our grandfathers, fought in World War II. Okay. And he was uh, in the Battle of the Bulge and was shot and left for dead by both the Americans and the Germans. And his mother got the telegram. And three days later, he was fished out of the snow by some Belgian nuns or something. He never talked about the war, like many people in that generation, never talked about it. But he always told me as a child, was it like four or five, Sean, no matter what you do, you will serve in the military. You will serve your country. And, you know, go to college and then serve your country and then do whatever you want. And that really stuck with me. And so my goal in, in college was to actually become a professor of philosophy. I really wanted to, to go to be, my dream was not to be a soldier. My dream was to be a, a liberal arts professor at a New England you know, liberal arts school with elbow patches and a pipe. That's what was, that was, that was it for me. Okay. Um, but I, I felt my grandfather's voice. He had, you know, at that point and I thought, well, also I thought it'd be kind of fraudulent if I was going to become a professor of moral philosophy and all I had known is the ivory tower. So I thought, you know, why not? You know, this, and what happened was even more surprising is that I, I found out I enjoyed it and I was good at it. I was this nerdy, geeky kid in high school turned into like this paratrooper. Um, and so I stuck around. Yeah, and you, I mean, you talk about uh, going from as you describe it, uh, you know, a geeky kid, a bookworm, uh, wanting to become a professor, and then you're you're you become a paratrooper, yeah. 82nd Airborne. You're jumping out of planes. Um, it, it, and by the way, it's not just that because from there you go <laughs> even to the next level, right? right. So, so you at some point you you do leave uh, the military and you become a private military contractor. Right. Um, but what I want to, I, I noticed the term paramilitary. So whether you can say or not, um, you know, did you work paramilitary as, as, uh, you know, as contracted out to the CIA at any point? Um, or, well, well I, I can't say obviously, but I did work for the U S government doing things that traditionally would have been CIA right. missions or special operations forces missions. And, okay. um, yeah, so you can draw your conclusions. Yes, fair enough. Um, so, but, you know, really that making the first leap that you did yeah. uh, is powerful. But then that next, that next step, I mean, you know, you're dealing with as a, you know, reading your book as a, um, as a, as a PMC, you're out there, you're, you're dealing with African warlords. Right. Right. You're, you're, uh, you also were intimately involved in uh, helping to stop an impending genocide in Rwanda. Right. Uh, you're, you're, you're doing executive uh, bodyguarding or security for uh, the president, I think, of Burundi. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, you're, you're getting into some really like yeah. heady, dangerous G.I. Joe stuff. Right. So how, does that, how did you make that transition? Well, it's, it's a great question. So I was in the army in the 1990s and the okay. US Army was, in my opinion, a terrible place to be mm -hmm. because it didn't have a mission. It was, it was in between the Cold War ending and 9-11. Okay. And it was like in search of itself. And I was a warrior in search of wars. And that's kind of what warriors do. And for good or for bad, that's a different discussion. But I was a warrior in search of wars. 
And I thought the future of US military service would be peacekeeping, like okay. Bosnia. And so I wanted to find where are the conflicts today? And that's kind of what propelled me to leave the military. And I became a private military contractor in Africa. I mean, Africa is the continent that has the most conflict. It's not the Middle East or South Asia. I mean, that, that's like Cub Scouts compared to Africa. We just don't wow. cover it in American media. Okay. And so I found myself in Africa doing these crazy things, initially for the U.S. government and then for some other uh, clients who are, had, um, shall we say, sanctioned by the U.S. government. <laughs> right. But they weren't the U.S. government. But I found myself doing things there that, um, would have traditionally have been done by what we think of the CIA or special operations forces. And it made me think like, what does it mean that we're outsourcing our foreign policy? And what does it mean long-term? Because most of the people I talked to who are policymakers were only thinking about it in very short-term ways. And that disturbed me hmm. as well as another epiphany that I looked around at some point in my my career in Africa, I realized there are no old people in my business. So between these two things, I was, I was, asked, I was questioning my life choices. Yeah, you know, it's funny you say that. I, I, you know, I've spoken to some, uh, to some PMCs, uh, some, if you want to call them mercenaries, soldiers of fortune, um, Dale Comstock, uh, who's a, a very well-known uh, private military contractor. Yeah. He's, he's about the oldest mercenary you'll find yeah. who maybe is you know was even working up until perhaps last year yeah so <laughs> so but it's a rare thing as you said to find you know anyone doing that kind of dangerous dangerous work um as a career <laughs> it's rare yeah it's rare so you so like a moth to a flame you 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 know like a lot of these guys, I mean, I talked to a lot of special operators yeah. who actually were in the military, in the army, in the special forces, in the ranges around the time you were in the 82nd Airborne. And they all say the same thing. You know, it was in between, right, the, the Cold War ending and uh, Iraq, um, right. you know, this, the, second, the second time we went into Iraq. And so in that middle ground, we probably only had Grenada and Panama. And that's, that's, a, that's about it, right? Yeah, nothing really. Right, yeah. so, so uh, I guess a lot of guys like yourselves uh, found work with, um, with the uh, DynCorps of the world. You worked, you worked for DynCorps, is that right? Initially, I worked for DynCorps, then I became independent after that, yeah. Okay, so, let, okay, so for, um, you know, it's funny, um, <laughs> because I think you mentioned how your buddies from the uh, 82nd Airborne kind of frowned on the fact that you yes. went that route. They said that you got, you, you had gone mercenary. I gun merc, yeah, I'd gone yeah. to the dark side, exactly. I'd fallen from grace. You fallen from grace, you went to the dark side. So let's explain for the audience, uh, those who might not be aware, yeah. what are PMCs or private military contractors? You also yeah. refer to them as, and again, I, I might get the nuances wrong, so please correct me, but uh, expeditionary conflict entrepreneurs or yeah. military enterprisers. Right. So just in general, for anybody who's not really familiar, there, there have been volumes of ink 
spilled in academic literature and, and like think tank white papers, you name it, on the differences between private military contractors, mercenaries, all these other things. And it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter. If you can be one, you can be the other. So basically okay. what a private military contractor is or a mercenary is these are um, armed civilians who fight in foreign wars primarily for profit, right? And now whether they are, they are Blackwater or they are Wagner Group, which, you know, it really makes no difference. The label is just a euphemism. If we are honest with ourselves, there's no difference. There's no bright line between the two. Uh, and we can explore why that's the case. Mm. But what you think of a mercenary, that's what a mercenary is. But there's a lot of also misperceptions currently about what mercenaries are. I mean, it's the second oldest profession for a reason. Um, and so part of why I wrote The Modern Mercenary was to sort of lay all this bare, not just from a, tell, it's, it's not a tell-it-all memoir. I mean, I could have written that. It's a deep dive intellectually into the history of private military force and how that changes international relations as we know it. But it, it starts with this question of who and what is a mercenary? So um, I, I still, and, and if you, you know, if you do read uh, your book, which I recommend to everybody who's interested in this topic, and it is an incredibly compelling topic because it isn't just about the concept of uh, the mercenary uh, or in, you know, a, a soldier for hire. It is, it's interwoven with uh, foreign policy. Yeah. It's interwoven with economics. It's, it's, it is, it sits at this weird core of the past, the present, and the future, uh, and spans, like I said, uh, geopolitics through to econ you know, uh, economic theory. But um, if you read your book, though, you will see these subtle nuances between the two. So let me, let me, let me ask you then, um, let's use the um, comparison you just, or the, the types of companies you just mentioned. So what's the difference between the, the triple canopies and the dying cores of the world. Yeah. Uh, and traditional mercenary firms like the now defunct executive outcomes, which I believe originally was a South African uh, concern. Yes. Uh, that also, if my, if my memory is correct, uh, operated in Africa, but in mm -hmm. the, in the sixties. <clears throat> right. So executive outcomes actually was in the 1990s after apartheid oh. South Africa fell. Sorry. But, no, no, it's, um, and it, it, it's an amazing story. And I don't mean amazing in a morally good way. <laughs> right. It's an amazing story. Uh, executive outcomes is still, in my opinion, the epitome of the modern mercenary corporation. It's a, it's a private army with a private air force and they're out of business now. They sort of went defunct in 1998. Okay. Um, but they have an alumni network of operators throughout Africa. And so when I was in Africa in the early 2000s and mid-2000s, I ran into a lot of these guys, and were all guys, and they were very good at their job, very good. Um, and they're still out there. Um, in 2015, I, uh, Nigeria hired remnants of them to, to, to take care of Boko Haram, which they did, which we can talk about. Um, okay. We're seeing them in Mozambique and other places like that too. But executive outcomes is what we think of as the traditional mercenary 
organization, right? It's, it's similar to like the White Star Company of the Middle Ages in Italy. It's like this, it's a private army. It's a turnkey solution, right? And they, you hire them to wage war. Blackwater and Triple Canopy and others are a little different in that okay. they, they themselves are not able to be a fully autonomous private army. They are more like auxiliaries to an army. Right, they support the U.S. Army, or in this case, they were really what they really were in Iraq was, um, you know, security details for high-value people. They really weren't a, a paramilitary force. They had guys who could have done that. They had like ex-seals and ex-Delta Force and ex-Rangers, but that's not really what their job was. And in, in many ways, they were not autonomous. They were really dependent on their client, the U.S. government. So you can make an argument that the difference between a full-on mercenary is that they're autonomous turnkey warriors versus a Blackwater, which they are, you know, in a more of a supporting role. But I think you can look beyond that and say that was the nature of the contract they had. Blackwater could, had they had a different contract, been more of a private military. And here's an example. And I was called in, I was, in 2008, um, there was a, you know, the raging genocide in Darfur. Maybe some of your listeners will recall this. Mm. Um, and there, the UN reaction was anemic. The US had declared it a genocide and under international law had to do something about that, but they didn't do anything about it. And so a lot of private actors thought about, can we hire a private military company to go into Darfur and create sort of islands of humanity to keep the, the Janjaweed out, the, they, were the, you know, they were killing people. Okay. And, and Blackwater had this subunit called Greystone that could do it, and they really could do it. So they just didn't have the contract to do it. So really the difference between a mercenary in a private military company is mostly semantic. Gotcha. It's mostly based on political top cover and the, the nature of the contract they have, but you're basically asking the same labor pool. It's you're, you're tapping the same labor pool. So that's why I say earlier that if you could do one, you can do the other. Um, uh, but there are, you know, obviously executive outcomes, as you mentioned, in our lifetime remains like the er mercenary corporation. Gotcha. Thanks for clarifying that. And yeah. I, you know, I was thinking six, you know, late sixties, early seventies. And I think maybe because of uh, films like the wild geese. Sure. Right. You yeah. Know, you had these guys. Um, and, yeah. yeah. You had a lot of guys out there. Well, all those wars of decolonization, especially in Africa, especially, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the Belgian Congo, attracted right. all sorts of mercenaries, uh, you know, Mike Hoare and some others. Uh, and, and the film Wild Geese is um, it's a fairly accurate movie for its era. So, uh, but, but the difference between then and now is that mercenaries back in the 50s and 60s and 70s were kind of like have gun, will travel, right? Have AK-47. Now they're much more organized and they're tapped into the international financial system and they're much more sophisticated and a lot more lethal. Uh, and this is why it should concern us all. Interesting. So uh, we'll get back to why it should concern us uh, in a moment, but that's, it's very om uh, ominous. Uh, so superpowers uh, such as uh, the United States, uh, as, as you mentioned in the book, cannot go to war. Yeah. 
without contractors, without PMCs in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, which was not the case 20 years ago. No. What changed? <laughs> <laughs> what what happened? There's a lot of well, you know, it's that's a that's a that's a an easy question with a with complicated answer. So if you think about it, when the U.S. went to war in World War II, only ten percent of the force was contracted. Okay. By the Iraq War, it was fifty percent of the force were contracted. Wow. In Afghanistan, it was seventy five percent of the 75%. force. Seventy five percent. Seventy five percent. To this day, we have but. One like two or three times more contractors on the ground in Afghanistan than we do troops. Wow. Um, now, just to be clear, most of those contractors are not what we consider to be mercenaries or private contractors. They are not trigger pullers. They're not training people to pull triggers. Mm -hmm. They're like cooks and mechanics and, you know, doing innocuous jobs. Okay. okay. So just to be clear, but we, it is true though, that the U S cannot wage war without the private sector. And I don't mean just, you know, the military industrial complex used to be about building products like jet fighters, right? And right. bombers. Now it's also about services, including lethal services. Our country is actually strategically dependent on the private sector to sustain wars. We can start a war, but sustaining it is hard. And most of those contractors aren't even American, right? We live in a global economy. When I was in the industry, it, only the senior leadership and top middle management were Americans like me. Most okay. of the rank and file were from Mexico, New Zealand, Ghana, you name it, right? Um, and so this industry is truly globalized, just like the t-shirt industry is globalized. There's, you know, the face of it is American, but everything else is everything else. Wow. Um, so you suggest that the industry... Uh, is beginning to bifurcate between a mediated market yep. with, with military enterprises yeah. uh, enter enterprisers and, and a free market populated yeah. by mercenaries. And, that, and you say whichever trajectory wins the market in the coming years between the enterprisers and the mercenaries, uh, that the outcome will be of critical importance because yeah. it will influence the future of war. That's right. How so? So when, when we think of like Blackwater, and this is maybe an earlier question, in some ways I said they, were, they played a more supporting role to the government, mm -hmm. to the US government versus executive outcomes, which was an autonomous private military. That's the difference between a mercenary and we call military enterpriser. A military enterpriser is a term that goes back to the Thirty Years' War in the 17th century, which was fought between, at that point, the superpowers of Europe, which was like Germany and, believe it or not, Sweden, right? Sweden, before they made furniture, they were a feared superpower in Central Europe. No one would believe it. No one would believe it, right? No one would believe it. Um, and, uh, you, and th that war, the Thirty Years' War, was fought by a lot of mercenaries, but they didn't, they were more like Blackwater today. They, they were not necessarily at the beginning of the war, at least, they were not autonomous. You had uh, these, these like billionaire mercenary organizers like Wallenstein, who basically created rental regiments to the kings and the princes of his day. And those regiments served 
under a flag, but were themselves mercenary. That's kind of what Blackwater was like. Okay. And um, over time, they became autonomous mercenaries, and they did a lot of harm in Europe. <laughs> they did a lot of harm in Europe. And so we're seeing a repeat of that in the last 10 years, um, where, but it's going in a different direction. So companies like Blackwater and DynCorp and a lot of others have created a lot of imitators around the world. Okay. From like Russia's Wagner Group to a lot of these other companies. And also we're seeing the industry atomize. It, rather than, you know, back 15, 20 years ago, you had DynCor, which was, which was traded on the New York Stock Exchange. Right. You know, you have companies like Aegis, it's traded on the London Stock Exchange. They had big clients like the UK government and US government, and now they don't have those clients anymore, and they've broken up. And the companies themselves don't really exist, but their personnel do. And they are, a lot of them, not all of them, have formed their own small mercenary groups. And they're seeking new clientele in Afghanistan, in Yemen, in, you know, all, you know, in Somalia, you name it. And that is the world we're facing because when the U.S. government was sort of like, you know, 15 years ago, when you get Blackwater, that's like Jurassic in the, you know, that's old history now. Okay. At that point, the U.S. government was, we were called a monospony. The U.S. government was like the sugar daddy, the main client. And as such, it had market power to sort of set conditions. Like, you will behave this way. You will not behave this way. And if that happens, we will not renew your contract. Now, the U.S. Gotcha. government did a pretty poor job of, of creating the rules of the road, but they had some influence. Now that the U.S. government has left Iraq, has left Afghanistan, has canceled almost all of those contracts, it's a free-for-all. And now we're having a free market for force, which is what the world was like before the Thirty Years' War. That's how middle, in the Middle Ages, that's how wars were fought, through mercenaries. Popes had armies. I mean, huge mercenary armies. It was as normal, right? Where, in fact, the word in, for mercenary in, in, like, Middle Ages Italian, Middle, middle Ages uh, Europe is conditori, which means contractor, just like wow. we call them today, right? Um, and so we are, we are regressing back to that world and we don't know it. Uh, we've forgotten what it looks like because the world that we grew up with in sixth grade learning about is that only nation states, you know, govern international relations. And they did it through the monopoly of force with their national armies. But now that nation states are losing the monopoly of force, that there's private force once more in international relations, it will change who has power in international relations and why. And now it'll be the super rich can become superpowers if they can swipe a check to do so. Wow, uh, that's very sobering. Um, so, and just to clarify, um, for the audience, what is, when you talk about um, the, the difference between a mediated market and a free market. What is a mediated market? Yeah. So a mediated market is a, a market with like laws and rules and regulation, right? So, um, you know, think about, I don't know, uh, automobiles, right? In our country, uh, there are certain codes of safety, et cetera, et cetera. 
the, a free market is a purely laissez-faire market where anything goes. It's the invisible hand of the marketplace, as Adam Smith would call it. And that is very compelling when we're talking about warfare, right? I mean, suddenly, you know, uh, and what that, what that really means is that mercenary, you know, you have an industry invested in conflict, which will go to the most conflict-prone continents in the world. And they will, because of profit motive, will start and elongate wars for profit, which is a pretty, as you say, sobering thought. And we're seeing that right now. Yeah, I mean, you suggest, in fact, that um, a new type, because of this, um, this bifurcation and, and, the, and you know, the, the trends of where things are going, yeah. you suggest that a new type of warfare may emerge, what you call contract warfare. Right one that encourages war. That's right. So what, what, is, what is contract warfare? Well, so contract warfare is like contract killing on a much bigger scale, right? Uh, so think of yourself as Tony Soprano or Don Corleone. Um, you want something done. You, you can hire a contract killer in the mafia to do it. It's the same way, but now you can like wipe out whole regions and countries, right? And, and populations. Mm -hmm. And so we're seeing this. So when I wrote Modern Mercenary, which was, I don't know, six, seven years ago, um, at that point, the U.S. still had a lot of contracts in Afghanistan. And I said, hey, look, the future is going to be one of two directions. The market's bifurcating. It's going to become more like private enterprisers we're gonna have like a, a quasi legitimate private military company model serving just countries like the United States or maybe the UN would use them for peacekeeping or they're gonna go full on like mercenary, traditional mercenary, which is that they're gonna, they're gonna go into the shadows and offer lethality to the highest bidder, exactly what people with the stereotype uh, suggests. And in the last seven years, that's exactly what has occurred. There is, a small wing of, shall we say, private military companies. They're kind of represented by this organization in Switzerland called the you know, International Code of, of Conduct Association, okay. uh, ICOCA. But they are dying. And we can talk about why they're dying. It's a, it's a noble effort. But frankly, they're, they're, they're struggling to keep afloat. Meanwhile, the straight-up mercenary world has been growing. We've seen mercenaries operate in Ukraine, Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, again, Nigeria, Somalia, the Congo, uh, rumors in Venezuela. I mean, you, well, we know that Venezuela. I mean, all sorts of places. And they are operating in the shadows. And, they're, and they, uh, they don't work just for countries. So we have reports of ex-Navy SEALs, ex-Green Berets, working as, you know, hit squads in, in Yemen for Middle Eastern monarchies, right? That's what we've come to. It looks very medieval all of a sudden. We never thought that we'd have ex-Green Berets doing this. Um, and it's not just one or two, it's, it's more than one or two. But that's our new world. Yeah, I'm going to actually, I'm going to, it's funny you mentioned that. I'm going to bring that up in a moment because um, that is like, it's a perfect example of what you've been predicting. Yeah. Um, so, I want to touch on something you mentioned about contract warfare, which is contract warfare can encourage war. Um, in the book, you use the film uh, Yohimbo yeah. as an analogy uh, for what that means. For most Americans, they're, they're probably more familiar with the American version of the, the film, the Clint yeah. Eastwood movie, A Fistful of Dollars, right? Right, exactly. So you, you, so 
if any, I don't know if any, you know, if anyone's seen the film A Fistful of Dollars or if you've seen Yohimbo, can you talk about um, how the contract uh, warrior yeah. or the contract, uh, contract warfare um, can encourage wars? So in the movie Yohimbo, it's, it's a, a great Japanese movie from what, the 19, late 50s maybe? Yep. Uh, and it's about this samurai who's, a, who's like a, um, a, what do you call a masterless, a ronin, he's a ronin. ronin. Yeah. And he shows up at, and there's like a small town and there's these two warlords and they're trying to kill each other essentially. And they're ripping the town apart. And basically through cunning, he plays each one off of each other saying he's working for one now, he kills a few working for another then, kills a few. Before it's all done, he ends up killing them all by playing them off against each other through cunningness. And then he moves on to the next town. This is a classic um, example about the marketization of warfare, right? And we've, we've seen a lot of this in the Middle Ages when mercenaries were how you fought wars. If you think of Niccolo Machiavelli's book, The Prince, mm -hmm. he rants on and on against um, mercenaries being uh, perfidious, unfaithful. And part of my research for this book and for the new rules of war was actually, you know, Hard, hard duty, but in Florence, going through Machiavelli's archives about the war, the Italian wars of his period, because mercenaries would play clients against each other. They would manipulate information. They would do all sorts of nasty things to, they, to shake down. And, and here's why, you know, to your bigger question, this is how it changes warfare. When you, we've, well, when you introduce private sector warriors, mm -hmm. It's suddenly military strategy blends with market strategy. It's like Klaus Fitz meets Adam Smith. It's like the, the rules of the Sook a marketplace are bizarre now apply in war, in war strategy. And our four stars have no clue about how that type of war is fought, even though most of history, biblical, Julius Caesar, Machiavelli, that's how wars are fought. And you, you know, and some, here's some examples of strategies in the marketplace that work in war. Um, just say that we wanted to, uh, just say that we wanted to really invade Canada, right? We are tired of Canada. They should be the 51st state. They should have gotten that memo 250 years ago, right? But we live in a world where nobody can afford a standing army. So what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to hire a bunch of mercenaries in secret to build up our, our mercenary army to invade Canada. But we're also going to retain every mercenary unit in North America. Why would we do that? So when they figure out that we're about to invade them, there's no more units on the marketplace to get, right? We've, we've sucked up the entire marketplace. Even if we're not using them, we're paying them to sit on their butts. That's a market strategy. And also, the, but we find out we, on game day, we go invade, you know, uh, Canada through Minnesota, that half of our mercenaries defect and turn against us. And Canada secretly bribed half of our mercenaries against us. That's another market strategy. 
And these are the types of wars that Machiavelli was fighting in, you know, 1506 and 50. And that's why he's saying this is ridiculous. Um, and so we've gotten away from that, but that's how wars used to work. It was a blend of military strategy, strategy and economic strategy. Mm. We only think, we only, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a professor at a war college. We only train military strategy. We have no economics in our curriculum, which is bonkers for a lot of reasons, but war is becoming increasingly marketized and those who know it can exploit it and those who don't will be exploited yeah this is um you know this is what kind of leads into the new you know your new rules of war yeah um which we'll we'll, we'll touch on um but you, so you mentioned venezuela yeah so and, and i wanted to really talk to you about this case for a moment because um, for anyone who, who doesn't know, um, Venezuelan opposition leader, Juan uh, Gaido, um, and he's the opposition leader, but I think um, the current administration in Washington r recognizes Gaido as the legitimate president of Venezuela, not Maduro. Right. But you had Gaido um, and his strategy committee. They apparently contracted an American company uh, Silver Corps, yeah, uh, headed up by, as you mentioned, uh, a former Green Beret, yeah. To and and the contract was to to capture Maduro uh, and expel him from the country. And they I, they went forward with a raid that they had about seven uh, sixty Venezuelan dissidents and a few ex Army Special Forces, right? A few ex Green Berets. Right. Mm -hmm. So the the plan fails. Um, a, you know, a bunch of guys get killed. Uh, the, the Green Berets, ex except for uh, Goudreau, who runs Silver Corps, but the, the two of the Green Berets on the mission itself get captured. And here's what I wanted to kind of delve into. So apparently, um, the, the, the general strategist from Gaido's committee, uh, who, who did the contracting, mm -hmm. told the Washington Post that uh, they had... Uh, been in contact with a number of PMCs about mm -hmm. ousting Maduro and the prices that were being demanded were from half a billion yeah. to 1.5 billion. Yeah. Now, and the reason they went with control uh, and, and, and silver core is because um, he came up with like a self-financed uh, plan yeah. where, you know, it, it would be based on future oil sales and you get right. a couple hundred million. <clears throat> so, I mean, are those the kind of figures that we're talking about? Because, I mean, if they would have paid the 500 million or even, I mean, if they would have hired maybe one of the, the more well-known, well, well, I'm sorry, one of the more well-known PMCs, yeah. right? The, the big boys. And if they would have yeah. paid, a billion to get the job done. Yeah. Um, I mean, we're talking about, I mean, we're talking about serious, serious uh, money here. Yeah. And if that's the case, you know, are we, so has that opened the door to um, essentially taking out the leaders of countries? I mean, I, you know, I can't, you know, Venezuela and, and the communist, uh, regime there and what they've done to the country, you know, he deserves to be ousted. But yeah. 
I mean, essentially, we're, we're talking about underwrite, underwriting uh, for a fee, the removal of, uh, of our enemy's leaders, right? Well, not only that, the U.S. has bounties on people like um, Maduro. We have a $15 million bounty on him and $15 million for some of his henchmen. That's going to attract mercenaries. Uh, so we're propagating this, right? But the $1.5 billion price tag, who knows? I mean, the, the oldest problem in the, the mercenary business is getting paid. So when I was in Africa, Okay. Uh, uh, a minister from a country came to me. They, they, um, a failed state. I uh, was working in West Africa, and they had a lot of Chinese fishing vessels poaching their their fish, you know, their, their fish stocks, if you will, off of their coast in the Atlantic. And they wanted it to stop. Okay. And they came to me and said, "Can you basically can you make us a small littoral private navy?" And I said, "I could." Okay. And we worked it out. Uh, we looked at money, um, but we didn't know how they would pay us. Okay. And the history of private, of mercenaries and the masters is both ripping each other off. Both. Now, because there's no court of law you can go to, right? Uh, who are you going to go to to sue? So a, a common workaround, whether it be in, um, in, in you know, medieval England um, where you know Henry II used mercenaries to put down a, a huge rebellion of aristocrats, uh, or you look at a Wagner Group in Syria, or you look at Venezuela, uh -huh. uh, what, what they do sometimes is they say, hey, look, let's go into business for each other, with each other. It's like intermarriage. It's like two warring families marrying their son and daughter together. And they say, okay, so we have an asset, an oil mine, uh, an oil drill field. Okay. If you, if you secure that, I will do a revenue share with you. And that's how they keep each other honest. And that's what uh, Wagner Group did in Syria. said, we want you to clear these oil, these natural gas fields of ISIS. And we'll give you, and so Wagner Group did that for a Russian oil company. Um, we've done this before. So, so this is a method of payment that's quite old of going into business with each other. Yeah, that is, um, it's fascinating because you can see how these things must have played out um, throughout history sure. where, you know, the, the, you know, the, the ruler uh, of the country who wins the war um, defaults on the, uh, you know, on the, on the contract doesn't pay and then what happens? Then, you know, then they go to war with the, <laughs> right. you know, with, with the uh, ruler of the country. And um, you're right. It's, it, so it's just, it's diabolical um, yeah. what can happen here. And it's, you know, it's no one, I don't, I mean, most people do not realize what the future holds because the whole world can tip into this kind of future very quickly. Um, right. For instance, and you mentioned this as well, so I'll use this as an example. Here's, you have, uh, you know, initially in, in the wake of uh, the Iraq and, and, and Afghanistan, in the war on terror, right? You had the modern uh, private military contractor and their activity, as you said, was kind of limited to carrying out security. Right. But that's, I mean, just in the last decade, I mean, that's changed dramatically, for instance, um, you mentioned having American special operators working for 
um, American companies that are being hired by um, uh, Middle East monarchs. Let's just say, you know, hired by the UAE, hired by Saudi Arabia. They're contracting American PMCs that use ex-special operators to kill high-value right. targets in Yemen, right? right. In fact, in, in the case I'm, in, I'm, I'm referring to and that you were probably referring to, there's yeah. a company called Spear Operations Group out of Pittsburgh right. that they hired, um, you know, and again, <clears throat> you know, uh, perhaps, uh, you know, this is in our interests, right? UAE right. is our ally, uh, Saudi Arabia is our ally, uh, and, you know, uh, what's going on in Yemen, you know, the, the taking out of those, uh, of those high value targets uh, is potentially very well in our interests, but we can't send in, right. We can't send in Delta force over there. Right. Be, right. We can't do it because there would be held to pay politically. If, if we, you know, if we were, uh, if we, if we we're going in there with uh, a kill list, right. Assassinating uh, high value targets. Right. Uh, if it got out, I guess, but, um, in this case, so what is the, and this isn't, uh, I'm not, I'm not casting, a, a, you know, a moral judgment here. I'm just mm -hmm. curious. So is it legal for an American company to work for a foreign government and essentially assassinate high value targets? Yeah, I, I'm not a lawyer, but I'm pretty sure that's illegal. <laughs> 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 so how but, sorry, taking a stab at that. But I'll tell you that, um, look, the reason why mercenaries are coming back, not just, I mean, look, who hires mercenaries? A lot of them are, are rich countries like UAE who want to go to war but don't really have a military to do it. Right. Right. So Saudi Arabia talks to UAE and says, look, we're going to war in Yemen, you know, contribute. Um, and so they, they, they hire people to do it for them. Um, you're also seeing the extractive industry and really, you know, billionaires starting to hire them more and more to do whatever they want, which is a whole different conversation. But the question is, why are countries like Russia and uh, United States, which have powerful militaries, why are they hiring private military contractors? I mean, surely we have SEAL Team 6 and Delta. Why do we need them? Right. The, the reason why... And I, I flagged this early, the modern mercenary, and take it up in the new rules of war. The reason why literally the mercenary world is booming is because they give you the most precious asset in modern war, and that's plausible deniability. Uh -huh. Okay? It's plausible. So we, li we live in an information age. Yes. And weapons that give you plausible deniability are now more important than raw firepower. Look at how Russia took the Ukraine in 2014. I mean, in the old rules of war, when Russia wanted to put their boot on somebody's neck, they rolled in the tanks, like in Hungary 56, Czechoslovakia 68. It was pure force, and that worked. That doesn't work anymore. In fact, pure force is a liability in modern warfare. What you want to do is you want to wage war in the shadows, and so nobody ever sees it. So by the time anybody sees it, it's a fait accompli which is what they did with Crimea. They created the fog, Russia created the fog of war in Ukraine using a ghost occupation army of Wagner Group mercenaries, Spetsnaz special forces, little green men, these astroturfed separatist Russian units, militia, and a lot of active measures and dense propaganda, 
right? They, they, they manipulated our perception of reality so that when Western leaders were still scratching their head about what exactly was going on in Eastern Ukraine, we saw tanks in Crimea and those tanks arrived that day. Crimea was already occupied by this ghost occupation force. And that's what modern war is. You know, look at Syria. We, do we know who's on the ground and why? Look at Libya. We have mercenaries battling mercenaries. These are the conflicts of the future in the way that the Spanish Civil War presaged World War II, right? Warfare is changing. It's going underground to the shadows. And one of the most important instruments of modern war are mercenaries because they can do things that we don't want our own soldiers caught doing on CNN and Fox News. And if it really gets bad, we'll say, we don't know who they are. And you say, well, that's ridiculous. You know, say, Sean, that's ridiculous. We know, we know those Spetsnaz guys, what they were doing in Ukraine and Wagner Group. We know what Wagner Group's doing in Libya, but we don't react the same way, right? I mean, that's the difference. Um, so it, it gives plausible deniability, not just for the country using them, but for the country who's a victim who really doesn't really want to escalate to war as well. All sides can back down and sort of scr you know, scratch it up to a bunch of rogue you know, war tourists, as Churchill would say. Yeah, you, you know, you, you mentioned this in the book, um, you know, this, this idea of plausible deniability. Yeah. Uh, and why that's so powerful. Um, and, I, you know, I, again, I've read both of your books um, or, and, well, most of New Rules of War. And so, I'm, you know, I kind of crisscross between the two. But, um, you know, this, this type of, um, fighting in the shadows, yeah. uh, so to speak is, you know, a, you know, perhaps a return to the past and we'll get into what, what that really means. Uh, yeah. I'm going to use one of your terms in a moment. That's fascinating, but I wanted to ask, I'm going to quote you, um, from the book. You said today. Military action is the sole purview of nation states and the United Nations. Only states are allowed to wage war. And corporations, human rights groups, rich people, and all other non-state actors are forbidden to use military force to achieve their objectives. But as we were just discussing, you're, you're starting to see instances where that's not the case. Right. Um, so do you see this changing? Is there a future not too distant where we have corporations, yeah. billionaires, um, fighting their own private wars <clears throat> with private militaries? The answer is yes. I mean, look, if you look at world history, Mm -hmm. Most of military history is privatized. It's this strange period of time, sometime between the 18th century and 1945 or 2000, where only nation states were the only actors who could use armed force for armed politics, right? Before that, any, you know, war, war is just armed politics. And we don't, you know, we, were, we are taught that only nations can do that, but that's, that's not what most of history is. We are just returning back to the status quo ante. We're going back to normal. 
That's what we don't understand, is that most of world history, war is a lot more diffuse in its actors and its reasons, and it can become very petty and very har harmful. We are returning to that. And if you look at it, I mean, the Fortune 500 are more powerful than most states in the world right now. When we think of nation states, people always think of the top 30. Nobody right. thinks about the bottom 160, right? I mean, you know, if ExxonMobil goes in the Gulf of Guinea, are you really going to tell me that the Gabon is more powerful than ExxonMobil because it's a state? Absolutely not. And ExxonMobil, you know, they play power politics. They hire, there's, we haven't even talked about, it. there's a whole private intelligence world out there too, like private CIAs that fuse fairly well the private military world and they work for private sector <clears throat> and you look at things like south of our border in mexico you have narco wars there yes that's the future of war now strangely enough the u.s government doesn't view it as war at all even though people on the ground certainly do they view it as criminality and it's strange to look at what do we privilege as war than criminality even though more people died in narco wars last year than iraq or Afghanistan. Wow. Somehow we privilege Iraq and Afghanistan as wars, but Mexico, it's just criminality. The Rwanda genocide, criminality. Uh, you know, an 800,000 person homicide, so what, right? Uh, so we have, but what we're seeing in, in the Latin American instance is that you have narco groups um, who are waging wars against each other and states are not drivers of war, states are booty to be won in those wars. And we call them narco states, like Salvador and Guatemala and some would right. say Mexico. That is gonna look more like the future of war. Not, not, I'm not saying United States of America or Western Europe or Eastern Asia is gonna look like that, right. but the Middle East is already that way. Sub-Saharan Africa is largely that way. Parts of South Asia are already that way. We are simply going back, we're, the, we're, the pendulum is swinging the status quo ante before states ruled the roost, before states had the you know, pride of place in international politics. And we were, gonna, we were returning to a time when anybody, you know, any family, any city, any, anybody who can afford the means of war, mercenaries, can wage it for whatever reason they want. And we're starting to see this unravel in a matter of, of three decades. Wow. Um, okay. Uh, and, and as you say, um, you know, this has been a feature of warfare for, you know, at least 3000 years. Yeah. So no surprise that, you know, this, this small, uh, period of time where wars were fought conventionally with standing armies is disappearing. We'll talk about that. Um, but I want to quote you again from the book. Um, you said by the 1600s, uh, or the 17th century, the conduct of violence was a capitalist enterprise no different from any other industry. And war became the biggest industry in okay. Europe. And you already mentioned uh, uh, Wallenstein, yes. uh, right? Who offered his services uh, to the Holy Roman Emperor Ferdinand II, I believe in, right, the Thirty Years' War, yep. and ended up becoming the richest man in Europe. He was. Okay. So do you foresee a free market for force minting a new crop of billionaires and becoming one of the globe's largest industries once again? You know, it's a great question. And, and I, you know, one has to be humble about 
predictions. I, I, I do see that we live in an insecure world that's growing more insecure every decade, so it seems to me, mm-hmm. where those who can sell security can do well. Now, will there be a Jeff Bezos of this world? I, I don't know, not right now. Maybe by the end of the century, that will be the case. Unless nation states reassert sort of a global hegemony together, which I think is, you know, as, as likely as world peace. So I don't think that's, that's going to happen. I mean, we still don't know what, I mean, I did a, a sabbatical at Oxford. I was a fellow at Oxford. I was researching the question of how did states take over international relations? That's completely anomalous in, in, in human history. The, the bottom line is nobody knows. There's no consensus amongst historians or experts. Um, and I don't know how we'd replicate that, especially since we don't even know how it happened to begin with. So I, I do think it's inevitable that we'll start to see, um, you know, Wallenstein's the future, whether they become the richest man in the world, I don't know, but I think it's going to become a, a bigger industry than it is today. Okay. And that's, I mean, that's, that's fair enough. Um, but I, I want to, uh, you know, I want to um, kind of, uh, dig into this point that you just made, you know, mm-hmm. kind of how did this anomaly occur? Because so the state's monopoly um, on the conduct of violence, I think is a term you like to use, sure. um, is often traced back to the end of the 30 years war, right? And the peace of Westphalia yeah. in 1648. You right. talk about this a lot in both books. Um, And that period marked the end of the open market for force that had existed for thousands of years. So that I wanted to ask you, I mean, why, why did that war Mm. result in an end to the way wars had been conducted with the use of mercenary for thousands of years? What was it about that war, the peace treaties, you know, because it spawned this anomalous period of the last, you know, what, 400 years, 300 years. That's right. Yeah. So um, we don't know is the short answer. We don't know. So um, throughout the Middle Ages in Europe, for example, mercenaries were how wars were fought. I mean, you had mercenaries were the main component. You had knights, right? And they, but knights, they were small. They were kind of elite, but they were small. And you had like rabble. (laughs) We had farmers given pitchforks and say, go to war. Right. And, and so mercenaries became the way, and, and also mercenaries and knights hated each other, just the way, you know, con- private military contractors and say SEALs hate each other today, right? I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's an ancient, interesting dichotomy that of, of mutual disdain, um, which we, we can talk about. Um, but, um, but the Thirty Years' War, in some ways, it was, it was much more horrific than World War II for Central Europe population percentage-wise, more people were killed in the 30 years war in Central Europe than during, you know, 1944-45. It took Central Europe a century to recover from it. And much of that damage was done by mercenaries, both in control and frankly, out of control in business for themselves. Out of work mercenaries become marauders. They, you know, this is the problem with mercenaries. They, they become bandits, uh, preying off of the weak or demanding, uh, they create their own demand curve by saying, hey, I heard you have, you know, a bunch of pilgrims got massacred. You need to hire us to protect them even though they themselves massacred the pilgrims. So you have all sorts of problems with, of governance. And I think there was a general, 
it's one of those rare moments in history where there's a general exhaustion by both the people and the elites combined come 1648. Um, other things started to happen too, uh, new technologies, um, governments were starting to professionalize and create civil service bureaucracies that had taxation. The Prussian state is an example of this, where it became, you know, it used to be nobody wanted to invest in a standing army because it's A, too expensive, and B, you couldn't control it. That could be a coup machine. But as in the right. 17 and 1800s, as you, in the imperial powers got more wealth, got larger they they created systems of uh of bureaucracy systems that can control and create uh the military and, and from this era you have people like Karl von Clausewitz and Jomini and other theorists um so much so that we by six, by the 1850s I mean mercenaries were used like King George III used mercenaries in the American Revolutionary War he doubled the, the size of the army by going to the German states and saying, I'm going to hire what we're doing. He was hiring, you know, German states militaries. They weren't like raw mercenaries, like the free right. freebooters of old. They were like, you know, I'm going to rent the 82nd Airborne Division for a year. And that's kind of how they did it. Um, but so states, so mercenary, mercenary is in the market for force kind of dwindled gradually over time from being, like independent contractors and independent armies to becoming sort of on the leash of states to states renting their own militaries out to other states to the 1850s uh, outlawing all of it. So the Crimea war is the last time we see mercenaries used that weren't even used in the war. Privateers were also outlawed in the 1850s or like mercenaries of the sea. Um, and from the 1850s to like 1990, Mercenaries are a thing of the past. They're driven completely underground. If they're used, they're used, you know, in these African wars of decolonization, totally in the outskirts and the shadows. Mm. And then the Berlin Wall falls down and they start to reemerge. And that's where we are today. We've done this a one a 360 at this point. Um, incredible. Absolutely incredible. Um, you also talk about um, technology playing a role, accelerating the expansion or the prolifer uh, proliferation of standing armies. How, how did technology um, advances like the advent of the gun? Yeah. How did so, that kind of proliferate the, the concept of standing armies versus mercenaries you're out? Yeah. So for most of medieval warfare, we're talking about Europe here, not, you know, obviously Africa or South Asia or, or East Asia. I mean, there's lots of other parts of the world, but our, our military tradition comes from Europe and mm -hmm. international relations for better or for worse is, is built on a European model from the age of uh, uh, empire. Okay. And what Mercenaries, one reason you'd hire mercenaries then, as you do today, is they bring niche units, specialty units. So um, they had these like heavy knights that take years of training to become a heavy knight to do certain, and there's all sorts of different names for these knights. Um, and if you really wanted to massacre your enemy, you needed some of these special units, but you, you couldn't afford them yourself. You had to sort of rent them, right? Uh, it's like a timeshare in some ways, right? Uh, okay. And, you know, and we see this today. So when Nigeria struggled against Boko Haram for six years, 
Um, Nigeria finally said, screw it. I mean, Nigeria has a pretty strong military too. They hired mercenaries in 2015 in secret to wipe out Boko Haram. And these mercenaries showed up with with attack helicopters, not just regular, but MI-24 Hind helicopters. These are like Soviet flying tanks. Nothing, we don't, nothing, and it, they're impossible to maintain unless you're like a specialty person. And, um, and they did, they wiped out, they searched and destroyed, they wiped them out. They, well, they didn't wipe them out. They, they pushed them into a neighbor's backyard, a classic military strategy. But, um, but that's, that's what happened. So, but now bullets in like the 1800s, 1700s, now, gunpowder was like the stinger missile in, you know, against these new, you know, in the, you know uh, helicopters. I mean, like, suddenly a relatively untrained peasant can fire a projectile that can punch a hole through an elite, you know, infantry heavy armor unit. And that and firepower became the great leveler. Mm. And this opened up a new sort of, you know, market for force. But at this point... Governments were investing heavily in militaries. There, there weren't like military enterprises anymore. In fact, they were being outlawed and, and killed, literally. And that's the stigma of mercenaries today. It goes back to this time in the 1800s, 1700s, where like, if you're a mercenary, you're a threat to the state, we're taking you out, you're outlaws. Um, before then, it was never an outlaw. It was just seen as a, a bloody but honorable trade. Wow. Um, I mean, you could, you could see how that one technological evolution uh, could completely change the face of warfare by yeah. democratizing, right? The ability to wage war. That's right. Um, but now we're getting back, but then war has become so specialized again that you, you back to, you know, everything comes in cycles, you know, you, so um, I want to press on something we've, we, we've kind of mentioned, but I, as, as just a fact of what's happening, but I want to see if I could um, shake loose the, you know, what's fueling this, this, this move, this, you, you, you know, again, to quote you, you say, uh, you know, armies are an anomaly, right? Right. Standing armies are an anomaly. Uh, the, the presence of a private military industry today is significant. And it indicates that the market for force is shifting back to a, a mediated market. Yep. And that the state's monopoly on force is loosening. That's right. And you say that if this trend continues, the world will return to a free market of mercenaries and right. contract warfare. So you're saying if the trend continues, right? What is fueling the trend? Right. That's, what fuels, yeah. What's fueling this trend? So in some ways, Libya today is a case study in this. Okay. I mean, you, have, you have Turkey using mercenaries, you have the UAE using mercenaries, and Russia using mercenaries. And it's, a, it's an example what I call shadow war. We, we have all sorts of people there. We don't know who they fight for and why. Mm -hmm. And that's modern warfare. And most people don't even know what's going on in Libya. And that's by design. And that's because mercenaries, it's not just mercenaries, but a lot of mercenaries, they are, they give you good plausible deniability. So the first thing that, um, that's driving this trend is if you want to wage war now, you have to do it away from the TV cameras, right? And so you need weapons that give you plausible deniabilities and war is becoming more sneaky as a result, right? And mercenaries are the epitome of sneakiness. Another reason that you're seeing strong countries and rich countries, well, rich countries only use mercenaries, right? Um, 
strong like Russia and the US and the UAE is because we have societies that are casualty averse. In other words, we, the American people do not like seeing dead Marines coming home in body bags from faraway places. Right. But we do not care two wits about a dead contractor at all. It's true. So if you are a politician and you, you know, you want to wage war to look strong, but you know, you don't want to have to deal with a blowback of dead Marines, send in the mercenaries or the private military contractors. That is my earlier point. It makes no difference what you call them. We know what they do, right? So if you want to, you know, so for casualty adverse societies and Russia has this as well. Russia has a lot of casualty averseness from the, the Afghan war from the 80s. Mm. Um, another reason you want to hire mercenaries is because just say, you know, you're a, you're a country like Nigeria that needs a specialty niche service that you can't afford, like specialty helicopters, which are very expensive to maintain and train. Of course, America, we don't have that problem. We're so rich. But a lot of nations don't, you know, they don't, they have to make choices. So why, it's better to rent them to own them. And so they're renting them. Um, and you can rent special operations forces units as well. I mean, you could get every, almost anything. Well, you, can, you can get a lot in the market these days and not everything. Um, they're, they're, they're also, if you're a smaller, sorry, go ahead. Lawrence. No, 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 no. I'm, uh, I'm just. It, it, the, the other reason is you're seeing is that increasingly you're seeing non-state actors turning to this field because America's heavy use of private military contractors in the Iraq and the Afghanistan war has kind of legitimized it to some extent. There was no international law blowback, nothing like that. And right. so now we can't, we can't finger wag at Russia for doing this with the Wagner Group, right? Or, or UAE or Turkey or anybody else. So we've normalized it to some extent. The, the sort of the you know, Pandora's box is open. Um, and so we're also seeing that companies are using this, starting with the extractive industry like oil, gas, timber, because right. they don't have a choice where their asset is. They have to go to dangerous places because all the safe places are already mined out, tapped out. And they're starting to use private military companies now because they don't want to be at the mercy of corrupt local national forces. So we're seeing this, this industry slowly emerge. It's not happening overnight. It's not like 9-11 where our life changes in 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. It's happening over decades. So we tend not to pay attention to it, but it's changing. You know, when you, you know, Mao says political power comes at the end of a gun. I'm not endorsing Maoism, but there's some truth to that in some of these places in the world that we're seeing mercenaries. And now that anybody who's rich enough can hire mercenaries to do almost anything they want, it's going to change who has power in international relations. And this is the stuff I saw when I was doing this, this work 20 years ago in Africa. And sad to say, it's just the, the trend line continues to go forward. So you refer to a concept uh, that kind of describes a lot of what we've been talking about, but I'd like you to uh, kind of, uh, uh, flesh it out for us a bit more. You you talk about this concept of neo-medievalism. Yeah. And how it threatens the world order, which has been dominated by nation states uh, right. for the last few hundred years. Can you talk about neo-medievalism? Sure. So neo-medievalism, it's I'm referring to like, you know, when we think about the Middle Ages, 
most people call them the dark ages, which is a misnomer. Right. Uh, they, they weren't. Um, when we think about the Middle Ages today, we think of like the Knights of Knee. We think about, you know, this, you know, uh, with Mad Max and the Thunderdome, stuff like that, right? Right. If we're on it, but that's not what the Middle Ages were. The Middle Ages, you know, it, it's an era where you didn't, it wasn't ruled by any type of category of political actors like a nation state, right? It was a free for all. And most of human history is a free for all. Um, and you had states and non states, and they were all on the same bottom. Nobody had a special authority. There's a couple of places like the Roman Empire, but the Roman Empire was not a nation state, it was an empire, it was ruled by a city. You know, a city ruled the Mediterranean. So when we think of nation states, we think of them as timeless and universal, but that's wrong. They, they grew out of after the Thirty Years' War, uh, and, a lot, and they had a beginning, middle, and they may have an end. And we're going back to a world that's no longer state-centric. And that's the point of the book. And a, and a symptom of this is the rise or the return of mercenaries. Because remember, mercenaries are, are they are, they stand apart from state, the state system. Uh, in the state system, only national armies can have the monopoly of force and everything else is outlawed. Um, now that we're seeing you know, terrorists and insurgents and mercenaries and Russia using mercenaries and stuff like that, it really looks more like the world before the Westphalian, you know, Treaty of Westphalia, before the Three Rage War, back in, the, in, in Machiavelli's day. And international politics is getting to a point where, you know, the global 0.001% will rule, the Fortune 500 will rule, uh, you know, groups like Al-Qaeda will rule, narco states will rule. I mean, it's, it's not just nation states, it's everybody. And we don't, Washington DC is not prepared for that. Our bureaucracy is only prepared to look at nation states, deal with nation states. And this is our challenge for the 21st century. So, okay. Um, yeah, that is fascinating. And, you know, to quote you on kind of where things are going and what you've just kind of talked about, you say that the Westphalian order is dying. Right? Yes. The 20, you say that the 21st century is maturing into a world mired in perpetual chaos right. with no way to contain it. Uh, what has been tried so far has failed making conflict the motif of our time, which leads to what uh, you, Sean, refer to as durable disorder. Yes. Can you uh, describe uh, for the audience, what is durable disorder? So durable disorder is what's left in the wake of states as they retreat. As the West, we call, in international relations theory, we, the world of nation states, which is the world that we grew up, again, in sixth grade learning about, mm -hmm. that's called the Westphalian order based on the treaties of Westphalia in 1648 and the world it's supposedly set up, which is that nation states rule, international law. It's all, it all comes back to then. Um, that world is retreating. It's been retreating since at least 1990. And what's left in the wake of it as states, look at Syria, right? Right. Syria was once a strong government. Now it's, it's a free-for-all. It's durable disorder for you. Okay? Mm. But it doesn't 
Syria is a kind of extreme example. Things don't collapse in complete anarchy. They do for a while in places like Syria or Somalia or Liberia or Burundi or the Congo, but they also kind of trudge along. There is governance on the ground often, but it's not to a, a, a flag or to a nation state. It's like to a tribe or to, there, there is governance on the ground in many places. It's messy, but it doesn't, it's not like the Knights of Knee. It's not like the sky is falling, let's invest in more sky. Most of us who are Westphalians think of if a world without nation state is a world of pure anarchy, like a, you know, like the road by, by you know, but it's, it's not, that's, you know, that's not the case. Uh, the world moves forward as it did in the Middle Ages in antiquity in durable disorder. We are returning to that. And the book, The New Rules of War, explains how to survive in that world, uh, how to do well by it. Because if you, you know, and we should also not mourn the passing of states too much, because let's not forget that when nation states were in charge, you had, you know, World War One, World War II, the Holocaust, some of the most brutal armed conflicts in history because right. of the organizing power of states. So it's not exactly a, a completely bad news story. The world's going back to the status quo ante of normal, in my opinion. You know, the last 100, 200, 300 years of states being in control of everything is anomalous in world history. And we're going back to a much older type of governance, world, world order. And Armed conflict, war, international relations will change as a result. Mercenaries are just a symptom of this. They're not a cause. They're just a mm. symptom of this. Um, well, uh, you know, you paint a picture, uh, especially in the new rules of war. And, you know, you talk about in that, in that book how to deal with this new world. Right. But after reading a lot of it, it is... It's alarming because although, I'll tell you why it's alarming. Yeah. Let me actually quote you here uh, and then I'll, I'll, I'll make my point. And this is kind of how I think we'll, we'll move towards uh, finishing up um, with the episode. You say that we are dangerously unprepared because war has moved on. Yet the United States and other Western powers have not. They assume the future will look like the past and that traditional strategies will work in the decades to come. Should this foolishness continue, we will eventually be tested and we will fail. So before I make my comment um, on what's alarming, in my opinion, that's alarming, but uh, you know, I'll tell you what's even more alarming. Why is it that we're that if we're tested and we don't change, why will we fail? We've got the strongest military in the world. I'm being devil's advocate here because sure. I agree. Yeah, yeah. I agree with you. But we've got the strongest military in the world. We've got the the most sophisticated military technology in the world. Um, I, you know our our navy, our air force. Our weapons are second to none. We have arguably the greatest special forces and special operations forces in the world. How, how is it that uh, when we are eventually tested, 
that we are likely going to fail? It's a great question. And this is the central question of my book, The New Rules of War. Yes. We have the best military in the world. Even our adversaries know it. But if we're honest with ourselves, Lawrence, we haven't won a war since 1945. So maybe all that high-tech military stuff is useless. I mean, because look, we're being built, we're being beaten by Luddites, the North Vietnamese, the Taliban, the Iraqs. These are not superpower militaries. So maybe we got something fundamentally wrong about war. And that's the point of the book, is that um, there are many ways to win and there are many ways to lose. So let, let's look at right now in our country. We have a culture war going on in our country right now. Democrats, Republicans, blue state, red state, Fox, CNN, you know, everybody knows this, right? Now we know democracy is messy, but, and, and we've been here before, if we're having just a family feud, that's okay. That's part of what democracy requires, as ugly as that is. Mm-hmm. But that's not the case today. We have external powers like, you know, Russia and China and others reaching in and finding the fissures in our society and ripping them apart and fanning those flames by taking issues like that are systemic in our society, like racism, uh, and then just trying to amp it up, right? And causing divisions so that we implode from the inside out. That's a form of victory in war. It doesn't look like the Battle of Waterloo or Gettysburg, but it's, it's the same type of, it's success nonetheless. There's other forms of, of, of winning as well. So when was the last time you saw a Hollywood movie with China as the villain? It, it's, been, it's been quite, I, I can't remember. It, it's quite a while. Right, I mean, we have Russian villains, we have you know, terrorist villains. Why no Chinese villains? In fact, they're only good guys like in The Martian and uh, they're only good guys. Yes, yeah. The reason is, is because China bought Hollywood legally, like legacy studios and all. Next time you see a movie, look at the pre-credits, the studio credits. How many of those might be in Mandarin, you know? Yeah. They, they get to green light movies that make them look good and kibosh movies that make them look bad. And they're building their own Hollywood in China to eclipse ours someday, they hope. And like, they're doing it. Like Wolf Warrior 2 is this Rambo-like movie that came out in 2017, over $800 million worldwide. I mean, that's like George Clooney money, right? right? So, and you're saying, okay, McFate, so who cares? They're in the movie business. Well, a form of victory is that all of our grandkids speak Mandarin as a second language and are sympathetic to Beijing values. And if you don't think that is useful, it's what we did to Germany after World War II. Look at West Germany in the 1980s. They were all speaking English as a second language. They're all sympathetic to liberal democratic values. Their ancestors in the 1930s and 20s would have been shocked to see that. So that is a way of warfare. Warfare is getting sneakier. We're, it's, you know, it go, victory goes to the cunning now and not just the strong. We're purely invested in the strong. F-35s, Ford-class aircraft carriers, which cost $13 billion a ship. Before you add aircraft and sailors, that's nuts. That's like half of Brazil's defense budget. And they don't go to war. They, they're useless in modern wars. If you want to see what modern war looks like, go to Libya 
go to Ukraine, go to Syria. That's what war is going to look like. It's not going to be, we imagine the future of war is going to be World War II with better technology, right? But that's, that's a farce. Um, we have the Maginot mentality. This is what the French thought and they built the Maginot line only to be outflanked in the Blitzkrieg. Um, so that is, that's why I think, you know, our sophisticated military, our high tech weapons, as, as amazing as they are, they are designed to, to, to win major wars of the last century and not our century. Absolutely um, stunning and uh, alarming. And what's even more alarming is in reading the new rules of war, you, you prescribe step-by-step step the solution. I do. You prescribe yeah. the strategies that and and as i'm you know as i'm reading them they make so much sense you can clearly see um why it will work but what's alarming is that i honestly cannot see our our government uh our culture accepting yeah what must be done in order to win in this new durable disorder, in this, in, in this new uh, world and these new wars. I, I, I can't see it. And this is great fodder for what I hope will be our, our, our second episode because yeah. uh, the new rules of war is so fascinating. It, you know, I wanna do a whole, uh, ep it, if you'll, you know, uh, if you'll humor me, um, I'd, I'd love to do another episode with you. Yeah, uh, we can talk about the new rules of war because you really do lay out. I, now I know why um, our, uh, our our friend, uh, the Admiral, called you uh, a new Sun Tzu because uh, it is a powerful prescription for mm -hmm. what seems like a quagmire, just an absolute uh, mess of uh, underhanded, sneaky, uh, maneuvering that is purely designed to render this country asunder. Uh, you know, you just mentioned, you know, a number of you, you also talk about lawfare yes. in the book. Uh, and there's a number of, there's just a number of um, situations that you lay out, which, uh, which kind of portends our inevitable demise. Should we not? Right follow the new rules of war. So um, I want to get you back on to discuss it if you're up for it. Absolutely. I think, I mean, I, I, mercenaries is actually one of the rule, the rise of mercenaries and how they change uh, warfare. And I think that's one of the critical pillars of it. But we, we have what I call victor's curse in this country. We, okay. we assume, we'll get into this in the, in the next episode, but the point of, the, of both books is not to just be alarming. They actually provide, Posit solutions as well. Yes. The point of the book is to is to create it's to start a conversation and not end it, okay. because there, you know, for a successful nation like ours to change its way of war, usually requires a lot of blood, and sometimes not even then. And I'm trying to start a conversation so that we could bypass that, and there actually is 
an intellectual insurgency brewing in the defense community that sees it, which we can get into more in our next um, podcast. But um, both, both books are really about the war of the future, not the war of the recent past. Uh, and to people who are, you know, really think of it, you know, a traditional point of view, it might be shocking and alarming at first, but then I think once you think about it, hopefully it's something that gets some purchase and that we're like, you know, we need to rethink everything. Uh, and we can talk more about what that looks like. It's not as radical as it sounds. There's things that we can do that are simple. Yeah, it's, it's actually not. Yeah. But just knowing, you know, entrenched thinking and yes. how hard it is to kind of turn the behemoth. Right. You know, it's not, it's not an easy thing to do. Yeah. I can't see how any intelligent person. Yeah. Um, it, certainly in the military, uh, but even, you know, uh, even the elites or, or within government, how you cannot read the rules of war and realize that, wow, we've got to rethink some things here and start inching our way uh, towards yeah. adopting, you know, this philosophy of, uh, uh, of the future of war. It's getting, it's getting widely read in, in the halls of the Pentagon. Well, that's, yeah. That's fantastic. I mean, you know, some people love it. Some people hate it, but that's not the point. The, again, the, the point of the book is to, to catalyze a conversation uh, rather than to end one. Some people are going to hate it because it, it, it budgets. budgets oh, are, yeah, Lockheed Martin hates me. No, yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> but uh, well, we'll talk about that. Yeah. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, fascinating, compelling discussion. Where can our audience uh, find out more about you and about your work, whether it's the nonfiction stuff that we're talking about or yeah. even your, your new thriller, High Treason, you know, and your novels? Where can people learn more about you and your work? So you can check me out on my website. It's seanmcfate.com. Links to all my books are there. The, the fiction is a mirror of the nonfiction. It's like a fictionalized version of it in many ways. Um, you can also check me out on Twitter, at uh, Sean McFate. Um, and uh, I'm on Facebook occasionally. Okay. But, uh, and also you can email me. I, on my webpage, seanmcfate.com, there's an email link. I do check that email every day and I do make a point to respond to all email. Fantastic. Uh, Sean, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Uh, as I said, an absolutely uh, mind-blowing, super interesting conversation. Look forward to doing it again. Thank you, Lawrence. Thank you very much.